So we'll start as we usually do with visualizing the merit field in the space in front of us. The Buddha surrounded by all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, lineage teachers, all the holy beings. And ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings in human form. And then we think that we are leading all the sentient beings in turning to the Buddha Dharma Sangha for refuge and for spiritual guidance. So come back to your breath for a few minutes. Let your mind settle. So when we share teachings together, then we should also share a motivation together. And so here, since we are practicing the vehicle that emphasizes compassion and love for all sentient beings, no matter who they are, no matter how they act, no matter how they treat us. Then we generate the motivation to become fully awakened Buddhas so we can actually see sentient beings in that light as kind and then have the wisdom and the skillful means to be of the greatest benefit to them. And so cultivate that as our shared common motivation for listening to teachings this weekend and sharing the weekend together. So, some of you, uh, I don't know if you followed the uh, earlier teachings of this set. We've been talking about this book for quite some time. But um, the present section that we're on is called Invigorating uh, a Dry Dharma Practice. So when our Dharma practice seems dry, boring, you know, nothing new and exciting, yeah, no, no uh, firecrackers and fanfare. Just self-centered mind. <laughs> yeah, um, 
so this this is a uh, some teachings on how to remedy that, and so I think they're you know kind of appropriate for everybody, even though even if you haven't heard the beginning part of this teaching. Okay, so it's from the book um, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, and as I remarked last year, this particular section um, came about from a discussion I was having with His Holiness's uh, the brother Nara Rinpoche, and uh, who is very straightforward and direct. And so we were talking about how, you know, it's easy to just kind of get blasé about our Dharma practice. And he had some some quite uh, good things to say about how to counteract that. So that was the inspiration for this particular section. Okay. So it's called Invigorating a Dry Dharma Practice. Some practitioners lament that they do not progress in their practice as rapidly as they would like. Does that pertain to anybody here? Yeah? Do you wish it would go faster? Yeah, quicker. Yeah. Hmm. Many factors may be at play. Having unrealistic expectations of quick attainments. Nobody here has that. Not anymore, okay. <laughs> Being very self-critical. Anybody have that? That pulls you down. Lacking sufficient study so we don't know how to practice properly. Mm-hmm. Or living far away from a teacher and a supportive Dharma community. Yeah. So all these can lead after time to just feeling like our, you know, our practice isn't particularly going anywhere. Okay. Um, that's not necessarily true. It's just our thought about our practice. So the remedy for these hindrances is, is to approach the Dharma with a relaxed, cheerful attitude, rely on spiritual mentors, and study the teachings. So other factors may also be at play, such as the three types of laziness, which we all know very well, okay, straight out of Shantideva, which we've been studying. So here the first one is postponing study and practice in favor of sleeping and lounging around, okay, um, some of you may be planning on doing that this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, second is being distracted from Dharma activities by involvement with meaningless works aimed only at the happiness of this life. Yeah, so running around, you know, taking care of our social life and this friend and that person and making sure, you know, our 401k is growing or, well, that's kind of useless nowadays, you know, making sure that, um, you know, uh, monitoring the stock market with your mind going up and down according to the stock market, okay? Um, so just kind of busy with all kinds of things concerning this life that, in the long term, uh, don't really matter to our spiritual practice. And then the third 
is feeling discouraged due to a self-defeating attitude or lack of self-confidence. Okay, so this is the mind that says, Oh, enlightenment, awakening, it's, it's too high. I can't do that. And the path is too hard. I have to give my body. I don't want to give my body. Yeah. And I have to stay up in some cold cave somewhere like Milarepa and shiver all winter to meditate. I want to do that. Actually, that's not true. You don't have to stay in a cave. But some people think so. Okay. And, uh, and then so the, the goal is too high. The path is too difficult. And anyway, I can't do it. It's too hard for me. I'm not qualified. Um, I was talking to somebody this morning, actually, um, and, you know, who was feeling, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I can't do this. And, and I said, oh, you think that uh, they passed out Buddha nature and you didn't get any? Yeah, that the, the uh, afflictions are in the nature of your mind, even though they're not in the nature of anybody else's mind. So he had a good laugh. But that's often what we think, you know. If I'm not the best, well, I'm just the, lo- the worst, and I'm the slowest, <sighs> you know. Okay, so that's, that kind of discouragement's a big obstacle. Mm-hmm. So the first two types of laziness stem from attachment to the happiness of only this life. To overcome these, uh, meditation on impermanence and death is recommended so that we appreciate our precious human life and use it wisely. Now that's one antidote to meditate on precious human life. Meditation on the defects of samsara is also helpful in this regard, because then we we look more honestly at what our situation is in samsara, and uh, we know that there's an alternative to it, and so we take that to heart, and it motivates us. Okay. Without seeing the defects of samsara clearly, we may want to use the dharma to make our samsara more comfortable. Mm. Like, samsara is not so bad. I just need to tweak it a little bit. Yeah? And then it'll be better, and then my life will be fine. Okay. So how do we do this? For example, by employing dharma methods to lessen our anger. Yeah. So that's not bad, you know, employing dharma uh, dharma methods to, to lessen our anger. Okay, um, but maybe we're just doing that because we want more people to like us, not because we understand karma and its effects and how our actions produce results and so on. So done more uh, just so in this lifetime, well, if I'm not so angry, more people will like me, that's good. Okay, Um Although uh, 
you know, lessening our anger is helpful and reduces the destructive karma we create owing to anger, it alone will not lead to liberation. So looking into our minds, we may find that at some level, we see cyclic existence as a rather pleasant and familiar situation. Although we may intellectually know the six disadvantages of cyclic existence, the three types of dukkha, and the eight unsatisfactory conditions, in our hearts, we still think happiness can be found in cyclic existence. Yeah? So we know the Dharma intellectually, but in our worldview, how we relate things, yes, I'm sorry, yeah, it's troublesome, but, you know, there's a lot of pleasure here, and I want to milk it for all the pleasure I can get. Okay, especially from beautiful objects, attractive people, getting some social status, having good looks, receiving praise, and, you know, having money and possessions. So we remain attached to that kind of happiness and forget that superior states of fulfillment and bliss are available if we make the effort to attain them. Okay, so we're just revolving around the happiness of only this lifetime. Yeah. And that's that's the way our world works. That's what everybody thinks about. Yeah. How many times today have you taught, thought of your next life? Yeah. Did you think of, of your next life at all today? You know, and make actions uh, based on care about what your next life is going to be. Or, or, you know, all our decisions today just based on how can I have pleasure and avoid difficulties. Okay. So to overcome distorted views and attachment to the joys of cyclic existence, we must meditate deeply and consistently on the disadvantages of samsara as explained in the first truth, the first of the four truths, and uh, as explained in the first truth and in uh, the origins of dukkha as detailed in the second truth. Okay, so the four, what we call usually noble truths or uh, truths for the Arya beings. Yeah, the first one is dukkha, our present unsatisfactory situations. The second is the origin or the causes of it. And then the third is the cessation. And the fourth is the path to that cessation of dukkha and its causes. So some people are not eager to do analytic meditation on these topics. Yeah. Who wants to think of dukkha, suffering, undesirable experiences, yeah, getting born alone, dying alone, not getting what I want, getting what I want, and not being, you know, it, it leaves me or it's not satisfactory, you know, avoiding problems, but they come anyway. And then, you know, aging, sickness, and death to cap it all out. 
And it's like, I, you want me to do some kind of analytical meditation on this, and that's supposed to be good for me? I don't want to think about this. I want to think about light and love and bliss. Ooh. You know? And that's why many people come to, to meditation. You know, I mean, meditation is very in in society nowadays. And, uh, you know, Buddhist meditation and general meditation are, are very, very different. And one of the ways that they differ is in terms of your motivation, why you do the, why you do it. So for Buddhist med- meditation, we always have the motivation either you know, to create the causes for a good future life, to create the causes to attain liberation, or to become a fully awakened Buddha to benefit sentient beings. But in general meditation, especially if you have a meditation app, you know, uh, then uh, what's the motivation? And do the people on the apps ever talk about why to meditate? You know, maybe if they do, the reasons are uh, you just feel better. Yeah, you're calmer. Something like that. Which, nothing wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with that, you know. We want people to be happy. But the thing is that that is a goal that is is a worldly goal that, that it aims for just this life. And when the Buddha taught, he's looking beyond this life, yeah? Because this life will last how long? We don't know, yeah? We don't know how old we're going to be when we die, yeah? So, but anyway, we will die, and future lives will come. So let's prepare for our future lives. And if we can get off the merry-go-round of taking one life after another one under the control of uh, ignorance and afflictions and karma, and if we can attain liberation from that, that's good. Let's go for that. And then if we could really benefit other sentient beings by by becoming a Buddha and be able to leave, lead others uh, to Buddhahood, that would even be the best. You know, so with the Buddhist motivation, you're thinking about uh, your your deeper human potential, you know, and the value of your life, and you know what you can become. Whereas on you know just ordinary things that we do, we're basically thinking about uh, our happiness in this life, and and that's kind of it. Okay, so there's a difference when Buddhist mindfulness and secular mindfulness, Buddhist meditation, secular meditation. So it's good to be aware of that because our motivation is key in determining what the results of our actions are going to be. Okay. So some people are not eager to do analytic meditation on these topics. They prefer to visualize deities, engage in breathing meditation to develop concentration, recite mantras, or meditate on love. 
of course, these meditations are worthwhile. But without a genuine aspiration to be free from cyclic existence and attain liberation, these meditations lack energy and they don't produce long-term effects. Yeah, you, you know, practice, you know, breathing meditation, your mind gets calmer, that's great but you have no philosophical context within which to place, you know, your breathing meditation so you feel better and you're satisfied with that and that's kind of it, yeah? Whereas a practitioner is going to have a whole uh, philosophical context to know that the, the breathing meditation isn't just watching your breath go in and out, that there's a lot more to it. Okay. So there is danger that we do these meditations simply to feel good, relieve stress, improve relationships, all goals that are worthwhile, and not putting those goals down, but they're limited in scope because they don't look beyond this life. And this life is very short. So we need to make our minds strong and courageous. While looking at the defects of cyclic existence may initially be startling or unpleasant, the sobering effect it has on our minds enables us to make wise choices and propels us towards sincere and continuous practice. So when we think about karma, our actions, and their results. And this is going to be uh, one of the main topics of this weekend's course. Yeah. Um, then when we think about these things, then we stop and we make decisions in a different way. Instead of just impetuously making some decision based on how I can get the most pleasure immediately, we start to think of, you know, how can I create the causes for a good rebirth? How can I get out of this whole cycle of samsara? How can I best be of service and benefit to other living beings in the long term? Yeah, we start thinking about those kinds of things. And of course, that then influences uh, the choices we make on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And because we know, you know, anyway, that just even if we talk about this life, there's short-term results, and then there's things we do for old age and, and so on, long, you know, longer term. But especially when we start thinking beyond this life, then the, you know, the long term really expands. Okay? So by seeing that nothing of lasting purpose, pleasure, or worth exists in cyclic existence, our interest will naturally turn to the Dharma and we will be eager to transform our minds. So some people may react to this like, wait a minute, lady, this is an exaggeration, you know? Nothing of lasting purpose, pleasure, or worth exists in cyclic existence? Come on, there's got to be something. 
But when you, you look at cyclic existence and just getting born again and again and again under the, you know, by the force of ignorance and afflictions and, and karma, we may have some moments of happiness here and there. But there's no ultimate purpose for any of it because we just cycle again and then in rebirth again and again and again. Okay, so it's kind of like being on a merry-go-round, yeah, and you're you're on your horsey on the merry-go-round, and the horsey goes up and down, and the merry-go-round goes round and round, and you can be on a pretty horsey, or you can be on an ugly horsey, and your horse can go high up, or it can go low down. But as long as you're on that cycle going around and around, you know, there's nothing of any real long-term benefit. Yeah. So this is why we want to get out of cyclic existence. Okay, so sustained reflection on the opposite of the four distorted conceptions helps us to generate the aspiration for liberation. So the four distorted conceptions are we see things that uh, change moment by moment as permanent and static, unchanging. We see things that are uh, foul by nature as attractive and beautiful. We see things that are unsatisfactory in nature as being incredibly pleasurable. And then we see things that lack a self as having one. Okay, so these are four conceptions that are uh, pretty well planted in our minds. And we fall back on them all the time yeah, to make decisions because we're not thinking of what the actual situation is. We're just living according to these distorted conceptions. So contemplating the impermanent nature of all samsaric pleasure, we understand that things such as financial security, relationships, and reputation are not fixed and stable as we had assumed. Okay, I mean, why are, are people freaking out so much right now? Yeah, well, the stock market. Yeah, so our assumption is the stock market should go up and up and up and up, you know, and at least remain stable. It shouldn't go down. But can we control it? No, you know, and it's been going up and down, up and down like mad the last few weeks and sometimes a lot down. And when that happens, we go, wait, it's not supposed to be like this. Yeah, things are, the economy is supposed to be booming. And then there's no baby formula. Who ever heard in the most prosperous country on earth lacking baby formula? Yeah. Did anybody, did you wake up like a year ago thinking that people, you know, the babies now wouldn't have anything to, you know, any formula to eat? 
Now, I don't know about you, I didn't think about that. And yet, here we are, you know, we thought that with a good economy, everything's going to remain stable, so there's going to be an infinite supply of baby formula. And there's not. Okay. Um, in building the, the Buddha Hall, you know, we, we've been trying to do this for a few years, and what's happening with the economy is not stable, so it's difficult to build. You know, our contractor told us, um, you know, a week ago that uh, they were trying, he or one of his other friend contractors, they had to do a big pour of concrete, but they couldn't get any cement from from um, Canada. And the Canadians said that, well, we'll get you some cement for your concrete in May. What? Yeah? Did you ever think that this country would not be able to pour concrete? I mean, we have concrete all over the place. Yeah. Or that, that we wouldn't be able to find, you know, have enough of these, you know, little chips and things that go in, not potato chips, not those. Yeah, but the other kind of chips that uh, go in all your, um, you know, your widget, gidget, digital things. Yeah, and then... That supply train get uh, supply line gets gets all messed up. You know, we have we have certain expectations that things are always going to be available for us when we want them. Yeah, but that expectation is kind of a fallacy, isn't it? That, I mean, that's not what is going on. Uh, and before Russia invaded Ukraine, we had the expectation and the idea that Europe was always going to be peaceful. After the Second World War, there was a balance of power set up. You know, there's prosperous countries, there's food. Um, you know, there's not going to be war in Europe anymore. And then, like this. You know, there's a major war in Europe, and people are slowly getting more and more involved in it. And that wasn't supposed to happen. Okay, we thought that the peace was going to be permanent. Okay, so this this kind of the we can see how these four distortions operate, and how we run our lives according to them and then become very upset when the four distortions, you know, are not the reality of the situation, and that things change. Yeah. Yeah. And we say, oh yes, things change. But, and change we don't see as bad as long as we're the ones making the change. Okay, if somebody else is making a change that affects us and they haven't asked our permission, uh uh-uh, that's not going to fly. 
Yeah, and we're going to get very angry. Yeah, but the world doesn't ask our permission before it does things, does it? Yeah, causes and conditions come together, things happen. Okay, so what we're getting at here is that a lot of our difficulty in samsara is that our whole way of looking at things, yeah, is distorted. These four distortions, they distort the way we look at things. And so we're constantly going, wait, wait, that's not supposed to be like that. Yeah. Children getting murdered in school. Huh? Did any of you, when, when you went to fourth grade, did any of you have the idea that you could be killed in the middle of a class? You did? Yeah, you're young. Yeah. For the dinosaurs like me, that never entered our mind. Yeah. We didn't know anybody who had guns. There weren't so many guns in society then. And there, you know, there certainly wasn't kids getting killed in, in grammar school. Huh? But our assumption that that would continue like that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And we're shocked and we're horrified and everything else together with it. Okay. So contemplating the impermanent nature of all samsaric pleasure, we understand that things such as financial security, relationships, and reputation are not fixed and stable as we had assumed. Seeing them as transient, We will accept them for what they are, use and enjoy them, but will not be sidetracked from Dharma practice by attachment to them. Yeah. So that's what often happens. We get sidetracked. Yeah. There's some glitter from worldly pleasure out there. You know, yesterday we had chocolate ice cream. Wow. You know, more. We always want more and better. Yeah. We want, we're craving more and better chocolate ice cream. Did anybody look in the freezer to see if there is any? Yeah, you did. Mm. Okay. Was there? Oh, okay. Let's go. Before it melts. (laughs) But often, you know, there's no more. Or there's karma, uh, caramel, no, caramel, caramel, that's the word, thank you. Caramel vanilla dairy replacement dessert. (laughs) Yeah with little specks of kale in it. (laughs) 
Yeah, then that's what you find in the freezer. Oh, dear. What a letdown. Did you find any of that in the freezer? No. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So contemplation on the unattractive nature of our own and others' bodies. Okay, so we just talked about the distortion of thinking impermanent things are permanent. Now we're going to talk about the um, seeing things that are foul as as pure and delightful. Um, so contemplation on the unattractive nature of our own and others' bodies will relieve anxiety about our physical appearance and the effects aging will have on us. Huh? Unattractive nature of our own and others' bodies. What are you talking about? You know, bodies are beautiful. And I do everything I can to make my body more beautiful. And I go to the gym and I go and, you know, have my hair done. And if I don't have any hair, I go to get some hair somewhere. And, you know, I change my glasses each year as the style of the glasses change. And, you know, yeah. And anyway, you know, if I put some perfume, I mean, and I use all sorts of things, make my body good perfume and aftershave and uh, body lotion and you know, I take all sorts of medicines and supplements and, you know, and the body's beautiful and the body's going to give me pleasure. Yeah, right? But what does the inside of the body look like? Is that beautiful? Are somebody's insides going to give you pleasure? Yeah. Oh, I went, a da- went on a date with this incredibly good-looking man. You should have seen his spleen. Wow, what a sexy spleen. And his liver. Oh, goodness, you know, the color of his liver made me shiver. <laughs> yeah. And those lungs... Yeah, little pink lungs, except he smoked for a long time, so they were kind of gray and black, but beautiful. Yeah, the shape of his lungs. Okay, but we think the body is beautiful, don't we? Yeah, and it's pure Okay, so when we think about the unattractive nature of our body, what our body really is, okay, then it helps us not be so attached to how it looks because we realize that our body is not getting more and more good-looking, okay? We are all aging Yeah, we are all aging, which means we are getting fat with more wrinkles and gray hair and, you know, we're falling apart. But we think, 
well, yeah, but that'll happen later on. It's not going to happen now. Okay. And anyway, science will prevent me from getting old and decrepit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Keep, keep a lookout. See if science can do that. Okay, so contemplating what the the body really is helps us also reduce fear about dying because of death we have to separate from the body. But as long, you know, if we can be more honest about what our body is, we won't be clinging to it like it's the most gorgeous, wonderful thing in the world. Yeah, as, you know, we have a precious human life which gives us the opportunity to practice the Dharma. And so we take care of our body, okay? But not out of attachment, thinking that our body is going to bring us ultimate happiness. Because, you know, this old thing can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what the commercials tell you. Yeah. as, what's her name? Estée Lunder, the one that all the beauty project, products. Estée Lunder. Estée yeah. No matter what they tell you, yeah, you're still going to get old. Yeah. And more wrinkles. Yeah. No way around that one. How would I look if I did Botox? Oh, look, that wrinkle would go away. Yeah, that one would too, yeah. yeah. Then you do Botox to here, and then your whole neck looks like it's, it's three centuries older. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they can Botox your neck anymore. Yeah. But, ugh, can you imagine if they tried? Okay. So, being more realistic about our body, what it is, helps us to release the fear we have about separating for the, from this body at the time of death and dampens unrealistic notions about sexual relations. We learn to relate to our bodies in a more practical way, keeping them clean and healthy, eating nourishing food in between the chocolate and the ice cream yeah, and the chips and uh, everything else. Yeah, some nourishing food in there. Taking medicine when necessary and avoiding substances that harm dharma, that harm, uh, that harm our body so that we can, and we do all this so we can continue practicing the dharma. So meditation on the fact that that whatever is produced by afflictions and karma cannot provide genuine happiness and peace helps us to relate to people and things in our environment in a more down-to-earth manner. Our unrealistic expectations will be waylaid and we will be able to accept things for what they are 
rather than spend so much time lamenting that they aren't completely satisfying. Mm -hmm. When we recognize that samsaric happiness is deceptive and inferior, our craving for it will relax and our minds will turn to liberation, true peace, and the bliss that comes from the Dharma. But we have to see through all these distorted conceptions to steer our mind in a more worthwhile direction. Okay, reflecting that all the people and phenomena that seem so real do not exist as independent, self-enclosed units with semi-permanent personalities expands our view. So when we look at at people, we think that they are independent, self-enclosed people, you know, they're not dependent on anything else, and they have their personalities that maybe can change a little bit, but are basically pretty fixed. So we, when we've spent a lot of time with somebody, we feel like we know them because we know all their habits, and their habits are not going to change. Yeah, they have a fixed personality. They are always predictable. Yeah, we have our personality, permanent, never going to change. You know, I ha- I happen to have a uh, a bad temper, so people just better get used to it because I'm never going to be able to get rid of it. You know, somebody else says, I'm greedy, but, you know, don't want, don't expect anything more from me. That's the way I've always been. Okay? And so we think of ourselves as, you know, as uh, with, you know, very concrete identities. You know, this this uh, guy, Ramos, who who just uh, murdered people, the kids in the, in the latest school shooting. Yeah, we look at him and, you know, you hear all over the news, he is evil incarnate. Yeah, and so, you know, people have given him a label based on something, one thing he did in his life. And this is all he is, all he ever will be. Forget it. Yeah. And is anybody like that? You know, with a concrete personality? And, you know, do you think you are the worst thing that you've ever done in your life? Whatever, what would happen if everybody looked at you? If everybody knew the worst, most obnoxious thing harmful thing that you'd done in your whole life, and that's all they saw when they looked at you or thought of you. Yeah, would that be accurate? I don't think so. And yet, you know, somebody like him, I mean, what he did was horrific, but we we create a, a stereotype and concretize him, and that's all he is. And so, likewise, you know, we all have our own identities. They're concrete. 
you know, this is who I am, don't challenge my identity. And, you know, even beyond that, there's a real me here. No, a real me. I am real. And I can control my body and mind. Yeah. Or I should be able to control my body and mind. Something is wrong that I can't do that. But we feel like we should be able to. Can you control your body and mind? Yeah. Can you control your your can you control your body? Oh yeah, I can lift my hand. Can you control your digestion? Yeah. Can you prevent yourself from getting sick? Can you prevent yourself from getting old? No. Yeah, control our mind. All we need is five minutes of breathing meditation to see that our mind is totally beyond our control. Okay, so, you know, just how we see things. Something is, we're not seeing things correctly. Yeah. So, with you know, as we practice the Dharma, we'll understand that the way things appear to exist from their own side is deceptive. They are dependent on other factors and empty of all the false modes of existence that our ignorance projects or superimposes on them. Since there are no inherently evil people, we won't be so upset and angry and will maintain an optimistic attitude knowing that people can and will change. Yeah. Sometimes I've done prison work, well, I've done prison work for many years, and sometimes people say to me, you know, how can you do that? You know, you're around these awful people. And, you know, I, I respond, but when you get to know them, they're people like the rest of us. And you can't say that the sum total of their life is one very wrong and harmful action that they made in their whole life. That's not who they are. And, you know, you really see people change. I mean, because people write us and they're interested in the Dharma, we send them books, we give them practices to do, they change. Mm -hmm. Okay, Dharma practice will become much easier as we see that we don't have a fixed uh, self or a fixed fixed personality. Uh, Dharma practice will become much easier, and with joyous effort, we will be able to transform our minds without labored difficulty. But we have to deal with these wrong conceptions first. The third type of laziness is discouragement, which comes from thinking that we are incompetent, the path is too difficult, or the resultant awareness is too high to attain. So I, and here I'm referring to myself, um, believe 
that this is a big hindrance to people in contemporary Western society. Rooted in the view of a personal identity and the self-centered attitude, it makes us give up on ourselves before we even make any effort. Okay? So you can call it low self-esteem. One of my teachers called it poor quality view. Uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, we don't think highly of ourselves. We're very self-critical uh, of any small or big thing and become so self-critical that, that we, uh, you know, we don't give our, ourselves any, any space. Yeah, we're always having this running inner commentary of, oh, I did that wrong, and what are people going to think about me, and I can't do this properly, and I'm incompetent, and all this kind of stuff, you know. And you would think that, that people who are very successful in the world don't have that problem. They all do. Yeah. And, and it is, I think, one of our biggest problems when it comes to practicing Dharma is we spend an outlandish amount, in, amount of time uh, in self-talk criticizing ourselves. Yeah, which makes us give up on ourselves before we even make any effort to practice the Dharma. So whether it comes from being taught original sin, being pressured to excel, or constantly comparing ourselves to others and never measuring up to our own satisfaction, this discouragement poisons our approach to the path. Would you agree? Okay. So let's just look at these. Being taught original sin. Who was taught original sin? Having it put in your little mind as a child that you are inherently evil. Okay, that's going to have an effect. How, who was pressured to excel? Yeah. You weren't pressured to excel. Oh, you just did it all by yourself? Oh, okay. <laughs> Nobody outside pressured her to excel. You pressured yourself to excel. Okay, now we got it. Okay. Or who constantly compares themselves to others and never measures up? to their own satisfaction. Hmm. Okay, so there we are. When we think like that, we, we give up on ourselves. We don't try. Okay, and if you don't try, then you don't get anywhere. So examining and shedding our erroneous thoughts about the meaning of success, learning about Buddha nature, and developing deep self-acceptance are antidotes to discouragement. Okay? So shedding our erroneous thoughts about the meaning of success. 
Yeah, we have to really think, what does it mean to be successful? Yeah, society gives us one version of success. Our family gave us a version of success. Our friends give us, tell us a version of success. What do we think when we examine how things are in the world of what success means? Yeah, is it having a corner office? Is it having a huge bank account? Is it winning awards? Yeah. Is it having a, a house that you know other people envy? Is it having a yacht the size of a Russian oligarch's yacht? You know, what do we think success is? Yeah. And do do we have a realistic idea of it? Or are we steering ourselves towards something that is all just fantasy that doesn't really make us happy, but we're trying to fulfill somebody else's version of success? Okay. Okay, so looking at this and really letting go of, of some of those wrong conceptions about, about what success is. Okay, learning about Buddha nature. Yeah, so understanding that the nature of our mind is pure. Yeah, that the afflictions are not in the nature of the mind. Okay, and then also developing deep self acceptance, you know, accepting ourselves for what we are, knowing that we have the Buddha nature and incredible potential. Okay, so really meditating on these kinds of things helps helps us to overcome the discouragement. How can we accept ourselves when we are full of faults and have created so much destructive karma? Okay? So we just hear all about our nature is pure and da, 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 and don't fixate on, you know, concrete things. And what do we, how do we respond? Well, how can we accept ourselves, you know, when I'm full of faults and I've created so much negative karma and you're telling me to accept myself and I have the Buddha nature and I can become a Buddha. Yeah, right. That's how we respond to it. Okay. <laughs> so again, we're just shooting, we just continue to shoot ourselves in the foot with all these wrong self-conceptions. Okay, so first, we need to ease up on self-criticism. I talked to one person once who was very self-critical. Yeah, he was an army ranger. Yeah, so he really did things, but very self-critical. And I said, Give yourself a break and accept yourself. And he said, if I do that, then I'll just be lazy. So for him, the only way to spur himself to do better or accomplish things 
was by telling himself how awful he was and pushing himself that he's got to, you know, do better and conquer more and uh, prove himself. And like, that's not going to really work. Yeah. If you suffer from self-criticism, heaping on more self-criticism is not going to help you get rid of your self-criticism and accept yourself. Okay. So, but first we have to try and at least ease up on that. So this, when we do, then that enables, and oh, and also to extend some kindness and compassion to ourselves. So instead of expecting ourselves to be perfect, recognize I'm a human being. Yes, I've made mistakes. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot of things that I wish I could do well, but I just can't. But that's okay. There's other things I can do well. So this enables us to accept ourselves for who we are at present, knowing that we can improve in the future. So it's not a self-acceptance that is saying, yeah, okay, right, I just accept that I am inferior. No, we're not talking about that. It's the self-acceptance of, you know, I have the qualities the good qualities I have now, I accept those. I have the faults that I have now, and I accept that. Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend to be an all-star whatever, and also I know that I'm not the worst person alive. Yeah, so I have some kind of realistic view of myself. And I know that I can improve in the future. So I'm not just accepting myself as some static, permanent personality, yeah, I can change. And the Dharma is here to help me change. Okay, so I have to learn it and put it into practice. So we recognize that in previous lives, we created a tremendous amount of merit because now we have precious human lives with all the conducive conditions to progress on the path. Yeah, so as soon as you start putting yourself down, say, I'm so unquiet, uh, you know, I'm so just, you know, I'm a failure, I can't do anything right. Just recognize in a previous life, you did a lot of things really well that created the merit to have the precious human life we have now, which has all the conducive conditions so that we can meet the Buddhist teachings and practice those teachings. So these conditions of our present life, they aren't accidental. They came because of causes, and we were the ones who created those causes. And now we're experiencing the results. Okay, so, you know, you can't say to yourself, oh, I can't do anything right, because we have done a lot right. In addition, we have the potential to become Buddhas, a potential that can never be taken away or destroyed. And each of us has our own unique talents and gifts that we can contribute to the world. So that's important to see. Yeah, We don't need to compare ourselves to everybody else. Whatever talents that we have, 
you know, we need to recognize them and use them to benefit others. And we aren't in a competition to see, you know, who's the best or who's going to get to enlightenment fastest. Uh, We talk about accumulating merit, but nobody's going to give us little gold stars. And look, I have more merit than so-and-so does. And nobody's going to rank us as a Dharma practitioner. So, you know, we just keep on practicing. Okay, so that's one thing, way to think to help us invigorate a dry practice. Then the other one here is called, Can a Leper Find Happiness? Okay, so remember that you know, the Buddhist scriptures were written in ancient India. And in ancient India and in in contemporary India, uh, leprosy is a big problem. And there's a lot of lepers. Okay, when every place you go, there are the lepers who live in that particular village or that town, and you, you get to know them. Okay, so... Uh, Magandhya was a wanderer, you know, a, a spiritual seeker who believed that experiencing a rich variety of sensual pleasures was the source of, source of growth and should be pursued with great enthusiasm. So this story of Magandhya is from one of the Pali Suttas. To help him assess if his view was correct, the Buddha described his own sensual, luxurious life in the palace during his youth and then explained that he came to understand the origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape of sensual pleasures and relinquished craving for them. Okay, so these these things, you know, origin, dis, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape. These are words that come often in the Pali Suttas when the uh, Buddha is explaining uh, the nature of samsara. Okay, so first, the origin and disappearance of sensual pleasures refers to their transient nature. They are continuously arising and disintegrating, never remaining the same for even one moment, and thus are able, unable to give us long-term happiness. Yeah, that chocolate ice cream we, get, we ate yesterday is long gone, and there is no way to get it back. And that happiness the ice cream gave us is also long gone. And then uh, to explain gratification, danger, and escape, the Buddha gave the example of an attractive person. So, because he's talking about sense pleasure here. So gratification is the pleasure we experience by looking at, hearing, smelling, touching, and thinking about that person. So you know how it is when you fall in love, it's like, 
they're the best-looking person that ever existed, and everything about them is wonderful. Yeah? Okay. Yeah? Remember, the we've all fallen in love, yeah? The honeymoon phase, yeah? Everything that person did, wonderful. Yeah? And the best thing about them is that they think I'm wonderful. That's the key to the whole thing. If they don't think I'm wonderful, then the deal's off. Okay, then I don't care beans about them. So first thing is they have to think I'm wonderful. Then I see how wonderful they are. Okay, but this gratification cannot be sustained. And the danger is that the person will age and become frail with broken teeth, white hair, age spots, and wrinkles. Oh, my God. I'm covered with age spots. And my skin looks like my grandma's skin. Uh, I lost a tooth here. Actually, the dentist pulled it out. Yeah, white hair. Well, lots of that, but I shave it off. Yeah, so nobody sees. And I become frail. Had hip surgery. Wrinkles. Yep. Okay. I fit the description. And you know what? No matter what age you are, you fit it too. Because we are all in the process of getting older and uglier. We're not in the process of getting younger and more attractive. Yeah. And that's the reality of it, isn't it? Yeah. So eventually, that person that we think is just so incredibly good-looking yeah, and wonderful, eventually that person will fall gravely ill and die. The corpse being assigned to the charnel ground. Wait, that wasn't in the marriage contract. Yeah, you're not supposed to age and die. Uh, you're supposed to be permanent. And the relationship's supposed to be permanent. And we're supposed to live happily ever after. Just like they told me when I was a little kid in the fairy tales. Yeah? Did you notice that all the fairy tales end with they lived happily ever after? Nobody tells you what happened after that day. Yeah. Snow White and Prince Charming had a fight. <laughs> yeah. And Prince Charming told her that her snow was melting and it wasn't white anymore. And Snow White told him that his white horse that he arrived on was now old and decrepit, and they were going to make dog food out of it. Oh, boy, was there a fight. 
you know? They don't tell you that part of the story. Um, Okay, disappointment in sensual objects is assured. Yeah, it's assured, but it's not supposed to happen. Yeah, it's not supposed to happen. Sense objects are always supposed to produce delight forever and ever and ever. Yeah. But they don't. Escape is giving up desire and lust for sense objects. Wisely disentangling ourselves from those afflictions and objects that bind us to misery because that's what our craving for sense pleasure does. It keeps us just, you know, we're like junkies. We're like addicts for any kind of sense pleasure we can get. Having seen the origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape with respect to sensual pleasures, the the Buddha explained to Magandhya that he chose to leave the palace, become a monastic, and adopt a simple lifestyle of sensual restraint. He did not envy those delighting in sensual pleasures because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures. There is delight apart from non-virtuous states. There is a delight which surpasses divine bliss. And this comes through pacifying the mind, yeah, and developing its good qualities. So Magdandiya thereby cultivated concentration, Oh, I'm sorry, the Buddha's talking about himself here. So the Buddha thereby cultivated concentration based on the fourth dhyana and attained arhatship with its inner peace and bliss. The joy he then experienced in no way compared to the insufficient pleasure derived from sensual objects. So Buddha said that to Magandhya. Yeah. Then the Buddha spoke of a leper seeking happiness and relief from the unpleasant physical feeling of his disease. And he gave some analogies that, ghastly as these analogies are, accurately describe the leper's situation as well as the situation of those of us addicted to wonderful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and thoughts. Okay, so here's what the Buddha said out of the sutta. Suppose there is a leper with sores and blisters on his limbs, being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails, cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. Okay, so you have to understand something about leprosy, yeah, is it it infects the limbs, you know, 
And it, yeah, you have sores and blisters all over them. It eats it away at them. It, the flesh gets destroyed. The muscle and bone are explode, exposed. Uh, worms, you know, and bacteria and parasites can easily land in the, in the arm or leg or whatever and just make it more and more infected and more and more painful. Okay. And leprosy is highly contagious. So people don't want to be around that person. That's why they have leper colonies and why they stick together. And one, and so the leprosy is very, very painful physically and also mentally, emotionally, because the lepers are really rejected from society. Yeah. But the one thing that gives them pleasure, you know, through when, as their worms are being eaten by the, uh, their limbs are being eaten by worms and they're scratching the scabs off, you know, because there's scabs all over. And, you know, yeah, and they're scratching the scabs. And it, I mean, it's just a mess. The one thing that, that gives them pleasure is putting their hands over a very hot fire, cauterizing their limbs. And so with leprosy, your limbs actually change shape because you are, you cauterize them and it stops some of the pain of the worms and the itching and, and all of that. Yeah. So it's pretty ghastly, but that's the one thing that, you know, gives the lepers some kind of relief in, in their disease. Okay, so the Buddha's describing that kind of leper. And then his friends and companions, his kinsmen and relatives, bring a physician to treat him. The physician prepares medicine for the leper, and by means of that medicine, the man is cured of his leprosy and becomes well and happy, independent, master of himself, able to go where he likes. Yeah. So when you have leprosy, you cannot move around very easily at all, you know, because your limbs are getting eaten away. So sometimes you can walk a little bit. Sometimes you have a stick. Sometimes you're, there's just a flat uh, piece of wood with some uh, wheels on the bottom and you sit on that and, and go like this around the, on the ground to move yourself along. Okay, so here's somebody who recovered from his leprosy. Yeah. So he must feel incredible relief. Yeah. So he, but this person might then see another leper with sores and blisters on his limbs being devoured by worms, scratching the scabs off the openings of his wounds with his nails cauterizing his body over a burning charcoal pit. What do you think, Magandia? Would that man envy that leper for his burning charcoal pit or his use of medicine? So if you've been cured of leprosy, are you going to envy a leper who has medicine 
or who uh, cauterizes his arms. Do you want to be back in that state? No, you don't envy that person. Okay. So now the, here's the explanation of the analogy. The lesions on a leper's body are home for worms. Their crawling in his flesh irritates him. Yeah, I mean, think of this. And the itching is so terrible that he scratches the scabs off his wounds, giving more area for the worm infestation. In another attempt at relief, he cauterizes the wounds on his body. Scratching and burning his flesh provides some satisfaction, but it lasts only a short while, and then the painful itching arises again more intensely than before. So this is an analogy to following craving and clinging and attachment in samsara. Okay? So here's so similarly, we beings in the desire realm, overcome by dissatisfaction of unfulfilled craving, we want this, we want that, we want the other thing, tormented by and seeking relief from the itching brought on by craving to get more and better of whatever we find attractive. So we try to satisfy our desires. But like the leper, this worsens the situation because everything we get serves to increase the craving. It's like drinking salt water. At first, at first our thirst decreases, but then it returns more voraciously and unbearable than before. And this is what happens why people get addicted to opioids and why there's such an incredibly high death from overdose, overdoses of opioids. Yeah, because people get some pleasure and then you want more. And you want more and you want more. Yeah. And in the meantime, you get physically addicted. Yeah. And then somebody cuts the opioid with some fentanyl, which is, you know, very, um, yeah, just a little bit of fentanyl will kill you. And people don't know that the, you know, the heroin or whatever opioid they're taking is cut with fentanyl. And then they take it and then, you know, they, they OD. And they're found in the park or found, you know, in somebody's home, wherever they are. And this is the function of the, of the craving for the samsaric happiness. Okay, so just as someone cured from leprosy would not envy the happiness a leper gets from scratching his scabs and burning his wounds, arhats, Never envy the pleasure of beings in the desire realm. Yeah, if you're an arhat and you're free from rebirth and samsara, 
You don't go, oh, wow, you know, I remember the good old days when I could have chocolate ice cream, you know, or I remember the good old days when, you know, I had a fantastic reputation and a red sports car and a, you know, corner office. The stock market was going up and I had it all. You know, an arhat, somebody who's liberated from samsara, doesn't care beans about that. They're not going to envy, you know. Yeah. So, you know, there's people in our society who, you know, are famous. Yeah. They're the influencers, the rich and famous and gorgeous people. Yeah. And an arhat looks at them and goes, I'm so glad I'm not one of those people. And, you know, we need to to have that same kind of attitude too. Yeah. Do you envy Ivanka Trump? Would you want to have Ivanka Trump's life? Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. Do you envy her father? Having billions of dollars and billions of lawsuits. Okay. But you you look at the people who whose society considers, you know, high, and would you really want to be have their life? Yeah, when they have, the, the, what was it, the Met Gala. That was not long ago, you know. So there's a, for, it's, it's for a good cause. It's for the Metropolitan uh, um, Art Museum. But it's the big, like, New York show-yourself-off dinner, okay, or show-yourself-off event. And there's a red carpet, and they take pictures of everybody in their, you know, in their suits, in their dresses that cost thousands of dollars that they're going to wear one time because who would ever be seen wearing the same thing twice? And also, what they wear is so ghastly (laughs) (laughs) that who would want to wear it again? Yeah? Do you look at the pictures of of those people, what they look like when they're dressed up for this, you know, incredible who's who of high New York society? Yeah, what what they're wearing. Yeah, would you want to wear something like that? No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. The men are, you know, like up to here with their, you know, suits and ties and 10 layers of clothes on. And the women are like wearing as little as possible. Yeah. And that's happiness. Really? And then you pose, you know, on the red carpet and somebody clicks. Yeah. And everybody stands around, looks at you all. Look. Yeah. I mean, I look at that kind of thing and it's like, it's so ludicrous 
How could anybody derive happiness from that? Yeah, and who was it? Some, some, one of these big people wore Marilyn Monroe's dress at the, at the last big gala kind of thing. Okay, and many people were unhappy. You do not wear Marilyn Monroe's dress. Well, whoever it was who wore it, yeah, la- lost 16 pounds in three weeks in order to fit into the dress. Okay, so she, because the dress is skin tight, so she inhaled, they pinned and zipped everything in, and she couldn't exhale until after the gala was over. (laughs) Yeah? And meanwhile, everybody's going, click, 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 and she's all over the, the entertainment pages for, wow, she wore Marilyn's dress. Yeah? Do you want to be Marilyn Monroe? I mean, what a suffering life she had. Yeah. When you look at that, who wants to be looked at as only a body? Your whole worth is your body and how your body looks. Nobody cares about you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the guys at the Met thing were getting, you know, some interesting suits and costumes and things like that, wearing capes and I don't know, I can't even remember it all, you know. But the guys were getting in on it too. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, if that makes you happy, good luck. But I look at it and like, you know, I think it's a lot of misery. Okay. But like the leper chasing after all these pleasures we want, worsens our situation because everything we get serves to increase the craving. It's like drinking salt water. At first, our thirst increases, and then it returns more voracious and unbearable than before. Just as someone cleared, cured from leprosy would not envy the happiness a leper gets from scratching his scabs and burning his wounds, wounds our hearts never envy the pleasures of beings in the desire realm. The Buddha then related that after the leper was cured, two strong people dragged him to a coal pit Yeah, as he wailed in fear and pain. So the coal pit, which was his source of pleasure when he was a leper, now he's terrified of. Okay. So the Buddha asks um, Magandhya, is it only now that the fire is painful to touch, hot and scorching, or previously too when he was a leper was the fire like that? So did the fire change from when he was a leper to when he's cured? The fire didn't change. Fire is still hot and burning 
Yeah. What changed is his view of the, the fire. Yeah. His situation. So Magandhya replied that it was hot, scorching, and painful before, only due to his illness. Uh, the leper's senses were impaired, and he experienced the fire that was painful to touch as pleasurable. Mm-hmm. The Buddha explained that so too beings who are devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, who burn with the fever of craving for more and better sensual experiences, have impaired faculties that cause them to believe that sensual pleasures, which are in fact painful, bring the highest delight. In fact, they would be much happier and less tormented by disappointment and dissatisfaction if they could see the origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape of sensual pleasures and release craving for them. So this corroborates recent studies that found that money does not equal happiness. This is a big topic of research in sociology and psychology. The Inuit of Greenland and the Maasai in Kenya report being just as happy as those in the Forbes 500 list of richest Americans. Yeah, the Inuit in Greenland and the Maasai in uh, Africa. Just as happy as all these people that the world says, wow, if I were only like them. So to conclude, the Buddha counseled Magandhya, the greatest of all gains is health. Nirvana is the greatest bliss. The Eightfold Path is the best of paths, for it leads leads safely to the the deathless state, to Nirvana. So at first, Magandhya misunderstood the meaning of health to be physical health. But once the Buddha explained that the nirvana, the cessation of craving and clinging, is the highest health, Magandhya was overjoyed and requested monastic ordination. Practicing sincerely, he soon became an arhat. Okay. So we've gone a, a long time there. Won't be questions this evening. Time for questions. So lots of th- lots to think about, huh? I find remembering that leper story very helpful when my mind gets involved in craving and clinging. Yeah, just remember that. Okay. <laughs> 